Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the WWWs. If you're listening on the internet, it's nice to have your company, and if you're listening in the car, even better. Um, there are some bits of today's program, however, I'm just going to give you a bit of a warning. Uh, there's bits of today's program, if you are listening in the car, um, that might get you a bit upset, a bit grumpy, and so maybe you need to pull over. So if you're on a long journey, maybe plan a, a, a little rest break in the bit when... I'll, I'll, I'll let you know when it's happening, because... In the last little while in Australia, there's some really silly things been going on when it comes to education funding, education policy, and now indeed the way they're treating our poor teachers. And we'll be highlighting these issues on the DOGS program because we are the DOGS, the Defenders of Government Schools. We're a very simple program. In fact, we've had one message that's been going out for over 30 years. There is only one education system in Australia that is a proper education system. And I'm using that in every sense of the word. It's proper because the, a school, a government school, it is open to all. doesn't care what colour your skin is. doesn't care what religion you is. doesn't even care if you're going to hell or not because it's a government school. Those are the only schools that I am willing to give money to because they are the only schools that our country has anything like a future if, if they support Here at the Defence of Government Schools, we will not and we cannot conscionably allow the children of Australia to be divided up on the basis of their religion or their size or their gender or their parents' income or any any particular reason because that's just a waste of everyone's time and resources. Um, And so we have to defend government schools. We have to defend them against lots of people. Strangely enough, one of the people we have to defend government schools against is the government, (laughs) Um, which is why we're here on 3CR, Community Radio where the voices of the people need to be heard, not necessarily the voices of the government. That sounds very old and communist, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, um, today we'll be discussing teacher morale and what's going on um, with the teachers of Australia, how they've been treated. And um, we'll also be doing a deep dive analysis into the, how the money flows um, with some interesting work being done just recently by Trevor Cobalt from the Save Our Schools movement. But, of course, we always finish our program... And you can get back on the road and it all cheers up because we'll be highlighting a very particular great state school at the end of our program here on the Dogs. But welcome again um, after Radiothon now. It's been a couple of weeks. Everyone's calmed down. 3CR, I think, is going to make it into another 12 months. It's a 12-month to 12-month proposition here at this radio station. If you have pledged um, any donations to our radio program, can you, um, and you and you haven't coughed up yet, look, I know it's because you've forgotten or maybe something came up. And, you know, life's like that. But no blame. <laughs> I myself um, 
pledged a bit of money and I've just realised now as I'm talking to you that I'd better cough up the 20 bucks myself. <laughs> so as, as soon as I'm off the air, I'm going down and um, I'm, I'm going to give some money which I pledged. So if you have pledged some money and you haven't coughed up, please just give the station a call on 94198344 and... Um, Double seven, I should say. Nine four one nine eight three double seven. You probably heard the dulcet tones of our producer Dale in the background. She's always pulling me up on, on facts and figures. She's brilliant that way. Um, yeah, if, if you have pledged and haven't donated, I think now's about the time. And look, if it takes a little bit longer, um, because times are tight, yeah, fair call. Fair call. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to hassle you. But, um, it's good to have the voices of independent radio, which is what we are here at 3CR. And, um, We'll be back, actually, with Jane, oh, Jane, Jean's famous press release. Press release number, what is it, Jean? 798. 798th press release since the dogs have been on air, and I bet you can't wait to hear what it says, because I certainly can't. We'll be back after this. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 03-9419-8377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. worth the effort to get to Darwin from the 2nd to the 4th of August for the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's National Conference. Australia at the Crossroads, time for an independent foreign policy. Held under the ominous shadow of US-China contention and US-Australia military exercises for war on China, discussion and speakers will address the social and economic cost of militarism to Australia the impact of militarism on the environment and the dangers posed to our peace and security by stationing US troops in Darwin. For more details, head to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's website at ipan.org.au. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the WWWs. Um, I promised you before the break we'd have Jean's press release and I will not stand in the way. <laughs> will not stand in the way of Manifest Destiny, which is this press release we read out today on the Dogs Program. Jean, tell us what it's all about. Australian teacher morale. <clears throat> There's a looming crisis of both teacher retention and teacher numbers in Australia. In comparison with Scandinavian and many Asian countries, particularly places like Singapore, teachers in public education in Australia are trusted, but they're not held in high regard, nor are they, do their salaries reflect such regard. Some parents believe that they're fair game for violent abuse. In The Guardian... In the last week, we've been told that sending new teachers to difficult schools could be driving them out of the profession. And teacher unions are saying that poor job security and lack of autonomy contribute to teachers leaving the field early. They spend quite a bit of time at university. They get tremendous skills 
and uh, they go into difficult schools, they're not treated well, uh, they have lack of job security, so why stick around when those skills are worth a lot more elsewhere? Uh, meanwhile, in the age of June the 11th, we're also told that children in country schools, or at least some of those in the country in public schools, are falling behind their city counterparts. Uh, and uh, that's a very interesting article indeed. Uh, you also find up in the uh, Queensland area, there was a very interesting article about boarding schools and how the children who are used to being the creme de la creme from the big pastoral estates uh, are not being able to pay the, fields of the, rock, the fees of the Rockhampton Grammar School. Very interesting article indeed. Uh, so we find that more than half of all regional and rural schools have recorded a slump in their VCE results over the past decade, and this has triggered concerns about a widening achievement gap between the city and country students. The figures have prompted education experts, principals and students to call for more resources, not only for country students, but incentives for teachers, which used to be there, of course, to leave the city, and greater support for the country children at the university. All those country teachers need a lot more support too. There's nothing new about this situation, but in our latter days of neoliberal failures, our governments and administrators are repeating the mistakes of the late 19th century. In New South Wales, we find that the Liberal government has upped the ante on a payment-by-results system by concentrating on outcomes and standardised testing. Kelly Bonsfield from the Charles Sturt University, writing in The Conversation, has this to say, success in education should not be simplified to concrete outcomes, specifically results in standardised tests alone. As well as going back, to contracting out to the tune of billions of taxpayer dollars, of course, the education of about one-third of our Australian children to selective class-ridden religious schools, our governments are returning to an insecure workforce and payment by results in Victorian schools. Now, in the days gone by, oh, that, it's all over Australia, not just in Victoria, of course, in Victoria, our school administration was decentralised in the 1980s and principals were given the power to hire and fly teachers and other uh, people in their schools. The private school model was uh, used. And in more recent years, on one-year te on one teaching contracts, dancing to the tune of NAPLAN results, schools and teachers are at the mercy of the standardised teachers testing procedures. The central administration has been nobbled and principals and teachers are thrown to the winds of fortune. Meanwhile, public school parents are subsidising essentials in the public systems throughout Australia to the tune of at least $1 billion. And that $1 billion would enable us in Victoria, I suggest, to take over the running of the private schools of this, uh, this uh, state. Now, this has led to educational disasters in the 19th century, this kind of payment by results system and the funding of private schools. But the problems were actually solved 
By the early 20th century, some of these iniquitous practices had been largely solved because state aid to private religious schools was abolished. Payment by results was also abolished. Teachers and principals were appointed, protected from violent parents and inspected by a strong centralised administration. And teacher training was done by teachers' colleges and universities in collaboration with the central state school administrations. We found, of course, here in Victoria that in the 1980s, they did away with inspectors. The problem with the inspectoral system in those days was that they both evaluated and protected and helped teachers. Uh, there is really a great need for an inspectoral system from the centre to be out and about teaching our teachers uh, and helping our teachers, particularly the youngest ones who are just out, their first year out, and encouraging them. And uh, this this ha- was done away with. It was a, a sad day. And it was also done away with by the VSTA, which was the Secondary Teachers Association, which was in those days dominated by people who had become members of the Newman Society in, in, uh, at Melbourne University and who refused to even appear uh, on the same platform as Ray Nielsen from the Dogs. So that might tell you a little bit, of, a little bit about what was going on in the politics of Victoria in the 1970s and 80s. Now, history does not repeat itself. I'm not saying that. But it really would be helpful if we learnt from it. And here in Victoria in particular, there is a need for a strong centralised administration that protects its teachers and pays them the proper wages and gives them the recognition that they deserve Because until that happens, how can you expect parents and the rest of the community to respect those who are not given the proper respect by their employers? But uh, that's my two pennies worth for this week. It's a long time since I was in a classroom, but it's not so long that Robert was in a classroom, just a matter of weeks, and uh, he mixes more with um, the current teachers and he is also uh, more akin to what actually goes on in the schools. So that's enough from me. It's over to Dale and Robert. Thanks very much, Jenny. Listen to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on AM Dial and podcast on the WWWs. Um, yeah, the role of teachers, the role of education, what's it all for? Um, Jean often talks about well, two things. Firstly, about education policies and practices in the 19th century. Um, you go, well, who cares about what was going on in the 19th century? We're talking about tomorrow when it comes to Australia. That's where the problems are. But she's right. Um, there is in many ways a situation where there is a mismatch of tools um, in terms of assessment, and there's also just a mismatch of ideas. And I'd like to explore that further as we go. And, of course, Jane's always talking about the 70s and the 80s quite right because extraordinary things happen in education and we're still picking up the pieces now. But um, I think after a few messages, I'd like to do a little bit of a deep dive into the bigger question. And it is, I think it's a question worth asking here at this time. Now we've settled into some sort of new regime for a bit. When we can ask the big question is, what's education for? What was it for in the 19th century? What is it for now? Who are the people involved and what are the tools they're using? And are they the right people? 
are they the right tools? And are we using, I mean, are we, are we doing the right thing? Are we doing education in a way that makes sense today, not education in a way that made sense 150 years ago? Anyway, more after this. My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family. And even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Defence of Government Schools program. So now we're going to have a little bit of a, little bit of a deep dive into history because, um, as well, Jean's very good at knowing about this sort of stuff, and I know a little bit about it, and I think it's interesting enough to perhaps share. Um, and, of course, if you have some opinions, please call the station and say, Rob, you're wrong, it's this instead, because I love it when people argue with me. <laughs> yeah, and when I say call, please do, 94198377. Give us a call, no worries at all. Um, well, what was education for? Well... Education was, in the, in the good old days, for rich people to, to, um, <laughs> to know more than poor people and, you know, tutors and systems and processes. It goes back to Plato, you know. Educated people have more power in, in a system or society or structure. They had the capacity to, I suppose in many ways, by the time it got to the 19th century, they had this idea of productivity. Uh, the idea is you, uh, an educated person has the ca- capability to produce more, to do more, to be more wealthy, to have some sense of flexibility and agency over their own life. Education in, in, in the English-speaking world... Mm. So I, but no, I, I think I know what you're going to say, Jane. In fact, actually, no, I don't. What are you going to say? I'm going to say that uh, there was also the reform movements in... There had been a revolution in France, but there was the reform movements in England... And there was the concern, once the vote was extended, not just to people of property, but to the men, not the women till later, but to the working class people, uh, there was the concern that the people who were going to have the vote should be educated. Adam Smith, of course, thought that you should have the education of all the people so that you could have an efficient army. Okay, so that's a lot of people. All of a sudden, there was a decision that a lot of people need to be educated, yeah. from not many, which is you know, just the rich people, to, okay, everyone. Because how can you say that this person gets education and that person doesn't? There's a certain unfairness to that. 
So back in the 19th century, there was a decision over several decades, I'm sure Jean can tell you more, but that everyone should get an education. An elementary education. Sure, sure, sure. Secondary education was still for the few, but the 20th century, it was extended to all. Sure. In the 19th century, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people decided they'd all have an education. Now, at that time, they were in the middle of what this thing called the Industrial Revolution. And the Industrial Revolution was all about large numbers of doing things and large numbers of getting things done and doing it efficiently and effectively and all that sort of stuff. And so... Forgive me if I'm jumping to a leap here, but they took the principles of the Industrial Revolution and applied it to the process of giving a lot of people an education. So you have an industrial system of educating people. Now, one of the consequences of educating a lot, a lot, a lot of people as well, you know, in, in an elementary way, as, as efficiently and effectively as you can, is that you have to develop systems. You also had to pay for it. So you had in the 1860s in Australia the introduction of income tax. Yep. Uh, but always the people who were wealthy have never, ever wanted to pay tax for the education of other people's children. I think that's uh, true self-evident yeah. in, in the current political and taxation indeed, debate indeed, as well. nothing new um, about it. But that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the idea of educating a large number of people and using the industrial model to do it. And they did. Um, as, as, I don't know if you've ever been to an old school. They're built different. Um, they are built as education factories in, in that context of the 19th century. First of all, you had what was called the monitorial system, which in some, some places you know, the Catholics still have the monitorial system. You had one teacher for a couple of hundred children and monitors walking around and making sure the children were doing what they should do. And then you had the pupil-teacher system where the uh, teacher had a pupil teacher under him, so you had two people in the classroom. Good. So there's your system. There's all the kids lined up, one, one teacher, 100 kids, monitors wandering around. And then Jean, quite rightly, says, making sure the kids do what they want to do. Well, that involves two things. Firstly is, you know, not killing each other, because schools always were schools and will be schools. Dickens wasn't too far from the truth, and um, many schools today behave as a problem. Do you know what? So what? Who cares? They're kids. Um, but the other bit of doing what they should be doing is learning. And so, therefore, the process of finding out if kids learning are learning stuff good becomes an industrial process. The process of assessment, did the kids learn the things that the one teacher told the 100 kids and which kid learnt what good and which kid what weren't lo- learnt what else better? And You have to get marks. They decided the way you'd do that is you would industrialise the process of assessment. You would have things like A's and B's and C's and D's and E's. They invented all of that. Um, because if you have a tutor for a very rich person, it's not a question of an A or B or a C on an assignment, because it doesn't need to be, does it? You either know it or you don't, or you know it well or you don't, or the tutor can bring out the particular genius of the child or, or support the child, because that's what a tutor does. But in an industrial system in the 19th century, we have a very large number of people that need to be educated, very quickly in, in, in terms of transition, in terms of culture and industry. The way you do that is you set up assessment systems. You set up standardised testing because at a certain point in an industrial system, someone wants to know if that kid over there is smarter than me or if I'm smarter than that kid over there because in, in an industrial education system, those things matter. So what I learn in the 19th century schooling system is compared to 
and standardised to what all the other children are learning because that is a standardised assessment process which grew very simply out of the Industrial Revolution and the principles of that revolution being applied to an education system. And it was used, of course, to uh, work out whether or not the teacher was being efficient, so you had the whole idea of payment by results. But over and above that, there was the question of the public service and having a well-educated civil service. And when he married Queen Victoria, Prince Albert was outraged uh, by the um, corruption of the British civil service, which was quite different to what he was used to in Germany. And he was the person who was responsible for the introduction of the public service exams, external examination systems, which meant that schools and people from schools could then um, test themselves against a public education, uh, sorry, a public um, examination system. Now, moving on. You might have realised, having listened to the radio, um, either on the internet or in your car, that the 19th century has not just gone, it's long gone. We're now in the second decade of the 21st century. And in terms of the process of education, a lot of, I mean, it's ridiculous to say, but a lot of water's passed under the bridge. And the process of teaching kids stuff good has actually moved on. It's moved on in many ways because it's been forced to. There's been a couple of world wars and there's needed to be some pretty significant education beyond just elementary education and all that sort of stuff. And it is basically commonly recognised around the world from from what's horribly called sometimes Asian tiger mums valuing education at the expense of their children to pretty much everyone on the planet that a good education is the prerequisite to a life on the planet, to a life on the planet. Now, back in the day, there's, there was this idea that you, you need your three R's, your reading and your writing and your arithmetic. And if you can have a standardised test that proves that you have all those three things, then that is sufficient to a good life. That is no longer true in the second decade of the 21st century. And every time a politician, every time some educational expert says we have to get back to the basics of, of reading and writing and arithmetic, and if we can do those successfully, then maybe we can do a bit of other things as well. But we have to get back to basics. Every time I hear anyone say get back to the basics, I go, what basics? The basics of 1840? What are you talking about, you foolish person? In the 21st century, the basics of a successful life in education are just by the horrible circumstance of life itself much more than reading and writing and arithmetic. There is so much more that someone need, people need to know about the world to have a life, to have the chance, to have the opportunity for a successful life. And here at the Dogs, we think that that is what is fundamentally going wrong in terms of this process of standardised testings that have been derived and, in many cases, ideologically unchanged for 120 years, being applied to education systems and being forced upon teachers who instinctively just know that this is, this is craziness. Once again, of course, it's always the private sector that really pushes for this. In fact, uh, in, the, in the 20th century in Queensland, the... Um, the scholarship examination which gave state aid to the private schools uh, prevented 
the state extending secondary education to all the children of Queensland until the 1960s. So 1960, what was it? And so standardised testing and uh, trying to prove that your school, through its results, are better than another school, is very much part of the market ideology of the current uh, private, private sector. But here, we at the dogs believe that education is actually teaching children to think, to think their way around problems because they're, well, while they're alive, they're going to have problems. If you don't have a problem to solve, uh, then you're no longer alive, is my, my philosophy. But, um, so here at the dogs, we think it's very important that the children, particularly in our public edu- education system, Yes, they should be given um, the ability to read, write, do arithmetic and all those things, but then they should be able to use those to think their way around the very real problems that they are confronted in this world. And that's why we were delighted to see all those beautiful children out in front of the Parliament House complaining about climate change because it is their world and they want this problem solved. Yep, yep. Why not? I, th- I think that all makes perfect sense to me. I, I would actually disagree with you, Jane. I, I, I think that reading and writing and arithmetic are no longer um, in any way sufficient to a successful life. Oh, I never said oh, that. Oh, no, no. I, I, just, I just think, yeah, okay, yes, that's, that's just the beginning of the beginning. They're useful. Um, useful, but the skill set. And I actually want to talk about just a little bit about what the skill set requires is to have a life. Uh, the opportunity for a life in the 21st century, and which is what we should be talking about here in the education system, because that's what it is our duty as citizens to provide to our children. Like, just uh, collectively, we need to provide that to our children as citizens of this country. Um, the old industrial principles have been disguised. Um, people don't talk about um, industrial education anymore because that's not very friendly, and you won't see that on a poster outside a private school saying, we have the best industrial education in Victoria. <laughs> Um, they will talk about market values. You're absolutely right. That the whole concept of the market driving education and com- competition between schools and between kids um, driving educational excellence is this ridiculous mantra. It, it, it's actually the same thing. Um, it's just being disguised. The free market describing the most effective way to run an education system is anathema <laughs> in any situation. Um, it's sort of the strange survival of the fittest where where um, where the lions and the tigers and the bears get subsidies more than the sheep do. It's it's a strange system that we have here in Australia. We've created a jungle. Indeed. Now, so what is it? What is it that we need to be looking at when it comes to educating children that is beyond and above standardised testing? Well, actually, strangely enough, I've got an answer to my own question. I'd like to share it with you after this.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program. I'm going to tell you what you need, what, what, you need um, what it takes to find out if kids learn stuff good and can have a good life when it comes to education. Those are all technical terms. I'm sure for all my educational academic friends you'll be shaking in your boots and calling up saying you shouldn't use those words that way. But quite frankly, I think that's what matters. And quite frankly, this, this, is, this is what does happen in state schools. And I'm talking about a great state school where this does happen a little bit because teachers have worked it out ages ago. They're not paid to do this. They just do it because it's the way to do it. Look, I'm a scientist. Many people are. And scientists love to have results. They have hypotheses and they do things and they find out and then they get results and they work out if their hypothesis is tested. And da, 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 da. Look, that is actually not a bad starting point. But what are the tests you use? Standardised tests are useful ones, but children's learning um, can be measured with some limited instruments, and it is standardised tests. But these tests were, can never be used effectively as standalones. Like if you want to find out about something, yes, you bring a set of scales and you can find out how heavy it is. And you go, right, this, is, this item here is two kilograms. That's not the answer to the question of what it is. <laughs> That's not an answer to the question of what are its qualities. That is not the answer to the question is, who is this person, how heavy they are. Um, and so they do lots of different tests, I suppose, but a lot of classroom time is actually dedicated to preparing for various tests at the moment, and I think that's a waste of time. The results of these tests are, of course, affected by dozens of variables that can't be controlled by the teacher, can't be controlled by the kid, can't be controlled by the parents, things like illness, hunger, sleep deprivation having a test using words that you don't understand to ask a question you could have answered otherwise. And if you, certainly if you're coming to the situation with a limited command of English, you know, language barriers can be very significant in a place like Australia. So standardised tests just sort of start to become very many, even when you think about simple things like that. Now, in the best attempt of teachers to mimic scientific experiments in education and get good results in tests, they insist on measuring the success of a learning intervention by students to standardise test results. So they'll give a child a test on something that they think they do or don't know, and then they'll do something, teaching, and then they'll test again and say, did they learn it? Now, these very same, these very same processes have led us down by failing to accurately capture what the student actually knows and what they can actually do. Because as soon as you say... We find out what you know at point A, we do some stuff, and then we find out what you know at point B. They might have learnt something between A and B that wasn't on the test. Now, in an education context, in terms of the child, that's the important bit. But that's not the bit that you're testing. And so those sorts of problems can come up as well. I'm I'm here arguing that industrialised testing has never worked. They had to use it because they were in a rush to get a lot of people educated in a a, a very short period of time in the 19th century, but we don't need those. We don't have those problems anymore. Um, Many people say that you're using this test because there's no better way. So, well, well, what's the better way? I'm about to tell you. Like, occasionally, you'll hear a story about a student whose abilities um, a teacher vastly underestimated. And then there's this good news story in the Herald Sun of poor child who happens to be smart and everyone finally discovered it and isn't that wonderful. I hate those stories. I hate those exception proves the rule stories. I hate those stories where isn't it wonderful that a poor child's smart? I just, it just infuriates me. And, and then when you hear those stories, everyone goes, oh, that's all right, then the education system's working, we don't have to worry about it anymore. Oh, I just, anyway, so um, that, that was a bit of a personal digression. Look, in my experience, watching tests and students over decades 
Um, standardized test results underestimate a very large number of students as learners, especially those who belong to minority groups, and language is a significant issue. Gender also, um, social status in the school. Many kids will sort of undersell their intelligence because they want to be popular. You know, in, in the Australian context, that's a very particular thing, but we'll talk about that some other day. But most often, and this is the key, it's the teacher, not the test, who will understand the student's abilities and understand that the student simply is unable to demonstrate in a test what they can actually know. The teacher knows that they know it. They have no particular interest in lying about this. It's not in them. Well, if it's if it's in some performance-based thing, then perhaps they haven't. So you know that that's a different question. I know Jean would have an opinion about that. But the teacher, good teachers, know. Good teachers who are with students day after day through all the variables of learning are far more likely to know not only what the student can do, but how they can increase what they can do incrementally. Look, if we all focused in Australia on on that. Just focus on that and work to build our strength as, and identifiers and promoters of children's learning. Then, and only then, in Australia can we have a real impact. Now, I've got two things to say about that. Firstly, that's what they did before the Industrial Revolution. You would have very rich people and have their tutor and, 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 and that, that's what a good tutor would do. We're in the second decade of the 21st century. We don't need personalised tutors to teach the marquee deals or whatever it is. We've got technology now. We have processes. We have understandings. We have the ability as a nation to fund a system where a teacher can know a child and support that child in a classroom. We also have a, a large number of parents who have tertiary education and who can, in fact, give insights to their own children. Yep. In other words, be their tutors. And the sad, for me, the saddest thing is that for the first time in about 150 years, this next generation will be worse educated than the generation before. And so what you're saying is, in fact, counterintuitively just not what's going on, which is, I think, just the horrific turning point, which is why we're here on the radio in the first place, because this is a big problem. So today in the 21st century, we shouldn't look back to the Industrial Revolution as the way to model education. We should go back further. We should go back further to trusting the teacher. Now, are there any models in the world for us to look at to see this process of trusting the teacher's intuition, trusting the teacher's skills, trusting the teacher's training to understand what is best for the child in terms of learning and education and a successful life? Yep. Singapore. Hong Kong. Finland. The Netherlands. Germany. Some parts of Germany. Hmm. Switzerland. Yep. High-status teachers, trusted, respected within their communities, um, working with the students and the parents themselves to do all of this. Standardised testing. There is no standardised testing in Finland. They have one test at the end of year 12. That's it. Yeah, they do that test. and um, Oh, no, they, international people come and give them international comparison tests, so they do those, but, that, but the kids don't care about those. They just do not give. Kids in Finland, when it comes to, you know, all the PISA people we talk about, all the PISA people rock up to the schools in Finland, in Finland, the kids don't give a damn. That's nothing to do with learning. That's just a, that's a couple of hours out of their day. That's a waste of everyone's time because they were, they'd be busy learning otherwise. <laughs> and here in Australia, when it comes to standardised testing in NAPLAN, oh, the amount of palaver that goes on about this is, and that's is. So, yeah. 
Are there people in the 21st century that have worked this out? Yes, of course. Oh, most of the most of the civilized world's worked it out. Here in Australia, no. We've got a market economy, standardized testing. We're still in this in, this this industrial revolution of education. And that's the point that I wanted to make here on the Dogs Program because that is the big mistake that is inherent in the fact that we divide our children up into private school students and public school students because private school students are just public school students on steroids with extra money in Australia. They're not any better educated. Oh, no. Private schools have the market economy driving them. They are industrial education, profit-making factories. If Kevin Donnelly had his way, they'd be, they'd be right back there tomorrow. Doing their three R's and their this's and their that's's and they'd have, you know, was it Judeo, was that Judeo-Christian something tradition? That, that made up word they made up about three or four decades ago. Oh, anyway, so you, you've got me going now. Um, that is at the core of what Jean was talking about at the, he- at the head of the program in terms of trust the teachers. Because the teachers know this already. They're champing at the bit to do this. And we're sitting here with a government, with a Prime Minister who won't send his child to a state school because it makes his skin peel. I, I, I find that... I find now is the time to talk about the big ideas before the next big fight turns up. You are listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Sign again. Get along to the old concrete gang and your radio from pull-up for 3CR radio. Monday, July the 8th, 11am onwards at the Albion Hotel, uh, which is now known as the Northport Hotel at 146 Evan Street, Port Melbourne. $20 entry and that gets you in the door, a feed, Listen to Phil Parra, one of the greatest bands going around, and a chance to win a $500 door prize. Be there or be square. See you then. What's up, listeners? This is Johnny Mac here. Just reminding everybody to tune in to 3CR at 11am each day from Monday, July the 8th to Friday, July the 12th for our special Beyond the Bars broadcast during NADOC. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. So make sure to listen in and support our brothers and sisters until they're home again. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. I'm sick of listening to me, and I'm sure you are too. Someone's got something interesting to say now. Um, sort of more micro than macro, but no less important. Um, Dale, there's, something, there's a little biography of someone who's been having a go for more than 40 years, and it's always nice to hear someone who has, who's got a bee in their bonnet and never lets it go. Yes, thanks, Rob. I've got an article here. Uh, it's written by Murray Mulheron, who is the president of the New South Wales Teachers Federation. Okay, great. And it's entitled Election Setback Strengthens Resolve to Keep Fighting. Visitors to the Federation building in Mary Street, Surrey Hills, will see a black and white historical photograph sc- scrolling on a screen in the front foyer. 
One of the images from 1962 is of a small group of New South Wales Teachers Federation members marching from Spencer Street Station to Melbourne to a, in Melbourne to a national protest meeting calling on federal funds for public schools. They, you were there? I can imagine. Uh, they had travelled overnight by train from Sydney and were joining delegates from across Australia in the Royal Exhibition Building. In the centre of the picture is a 32-year-old teacher wearing a suit and holding a banner saying, We're here for federal funds. Mm. Now a resident on the New South Wales uh, South Coast, that young teacher, Dave, will turn 89 this year. He and his partner, also a retired teacher, have a fair funding now core flute on their front fence near where I live. As I went to vote in the federal election on May the 8th, I caught up with Dave, who was handing out information at the local booth in support of a fair funding and rebuilding TAFE. It's a poignant reminder of how long public school teachers have been campaigning for essential resources for teachers to enable them to do the job society expects of them. It is also evidence that we've been playing the long game. Mm. The profound disappointment felt at the return of the Liberal National Coalition Government on May the 18th will not diminish the Federation's resolve to continue to fight for a well-resourced public education system. There is no choice. Last month's federal elections result means that for the next three years, public schools will not be funded to the minimum schooling resources standard. The privatisation of vocation education and training will continue. Also, the opportunity for guaranteed preschool funding for three-year-olds and four-year-olds is lost for now. Federal Council recently placed on record its heartfelt thanks to the thousands of members, officers, staff, parents, community activists and allied organisations for their commitment and work over a long period to sustain the schools and TAFE funding campaigns. In our campaigns for fair funding for public schools and to save TAFE as a proud public institution, we've taken on Australia's most powerful and connected elites. That's why it's been so difficult and such a long haul. But in doing so, we have changed the discourse on public education, which in itself is a tremendous achievement. Our primary task has always been to ensure our policy positions on school funding and TAFE are elevated to the national agenda. There is no doubt this has been achieved, which means we have a solid foundation for the next phases of the campaign as we regroup and continue building community support. While public schools in New South Wales are nowhere near the minimum school resources standard since about... 2010, the various phases of funding campaigns for our future, I give a Gonski and Fair Funding Now, have resulted in billions in additional recurrent funding for our schools. However, the funding gap is still significant and funding inequalities between public and private schools are unacceptable. Our immediate focus will be to ensure additional recurrent funding is used in an effective way to create more permanent teaching positions, increase time, lower class sizes and to, and to strengthen systemic support for teaching and learning 
to name just a few priorities. We must maintain our principles and traditions, which is why in the coming weeks and months we will evaluate and refocus, but we won't retreat. We were passed baton by previous generations of activists and we can be proud to have run our hardest with what they gave us. But the race is far from over. Too much is at stake to slow down. Thank and you, that's Jeff. the dog's position. We're still here. I've been there since 1962. So you were at that Yes, yes. 1862. So you were there in the Industrial Revolution. 1962. Sorry. Oh, I'm being very, very rude to Jane. Very rude. Well, you youngsters, at least the baton has been passed on. Thank you, Jane. Us youngsters will continue because I've got something to say. I've got something to say really special about a great state school after this. Every week on the Dogs Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Oh, you can pull out now. You can stop being grumpy. Get back on the road because I've got something really cool to tell you. I'm going to tell you about a little place. It's a street, actually, called Elizabeth Street. No, it's not the one in town. It's Elizabeth Street. It's out of town. In fact, it's Elizabeth Street in a little town just out of Melbourne called Moey. Now, Moey is an interesting place. It's called the Elizabeth Street Primary School, but it's also called the Moey Primary School. Now, School's a funny word for this, and um, I, I have some experience. I love this school. Um, I call it a school. It's actually, it's actually about seven teachers and about eighty kids, and then about six or so teachers' assistants. So it's a whole. You know, it's a few grown-ups, and it's a lot of kids, and they all get together. And do you know what they do? They do learning good. They do learning good down there at Moey Primary School. It's a lovely place. Um, a quarter of the kids at Moey Primary um, come from um, an, an Indigenous background. From they call it Kuri down there, from from a Kuri background. And there's another 20% or so who come from a, a, a language background of other than English. Um, the kids are great. <laughs> the teachers are great. Now, don't take my word for it. Let me tell you a little bit about them. A little little bit about the school. Firstly, you know, I often talk about you talk about values. Private schools talk about it. They put it on big posters. They put it on ads on television. They put it on the side of trans. Values, 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 values. Um, of the kids in this school, when it comes to the incomes that their parents bring into that to the home compared to the rest of Australia, 4%, 4% of the kids in this school come from families whose income is above average. 87% of the kids in this school come from families whose income is in, in amongst the poorest families in Australia. And this is the one place, Murray Primary School, Elizabeth Street, where no one gives a damn. They don't care. You walk through that school gate, no one asks that question, no one cares. Because at this primary school, they strive for strong, social, and also personal sort of outcomes. All students, all students are supported to take responsibility for themselves when they're through the school door. Their social and their learning and the power that they have in the world and what it is that they want to be and their lives ahead of them and to become productive 
members of community. And I'm productive there isn't in the industrial sense, in terms of how many things, widgets you can make. It's productive in terms of moving forward into the 21st century. Now, to do that with those kids costs $18,000 per kid per year, which, as far as I'm concerned, in the Australian context, is a bargain. You take my taxes, you put them right there with those people, with those, I don't know, 14 to 16 adults and those 80 or so kids, and that, as far as I'm concerned, is money well spent. Their idea in the school is to actually unlock, unlock the children, to take them from outside the school gates, to bring them in and then to unlock them as, as positive, caring, safe, beautiful, learning people. And they've been doing this for a while. They have well-established processes and practices in place to ensure that every single student is able to engage in an education that unlocks these potentials. That's what they do. This is 21st century language. They're doing 21st century learning. And every now and then some 19th century word will creep in, but that's not important. How well do the kids go? Um, look, compared to the rest of Australia, um, they, in some cases they struggle. But there's one particular one particular sort of set of numbers, standardised tests, and I am going to refer to it because I think it's kind of funny. Compared to schools with similar students, this school just rocks. <laughs> but because there are so many students here in terms of language who struggle very early on because they come from languages background, backgrounds other than English or they come from an Indigenous language background, the grammar of these kids in Grade 3 is not to put too fine a point upon it, if you put them in front of a test and test them on grammar when they're seven years old, they do not do well on that test. (laughs) They do not do well at all. But a couple of years later, grade five, they are so far above average, not just for similar schools, but for the entire country, something is going on. That difference from, oh, no, that's not good, to two years later, oh, you are rocking it, that's the mark of a great state school because these guys don't they don't go walk through the door you're ours we work together here and they call themselves they call themselves the elizabeth street school but the rest of the world calls them the Murray primary school i don't care one way or the other um they work together to create extraordinary outcomes as far as i'm concerned together as a community in a 21st in a 21st century environment now, I'm going to say this, and I don't often say this when I'm talking about a great state school. These guys are just doing it against the odds. I have just discovered in an article just recently in the Guardian newspaper that the Knox Grammar School has just decided that it's going, or it has spent, <laughs> it has spent this is ridiculous, $47 million on a new performing arts centre at Knox Grammar. This, 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 is, this is 30 miles down the road from Elizabeth Street, okay? This, this, this $47 million facility not going to includes a performing arts centre housing 750 people, a purpose-built dance studio, soundproofing rooms for one-on musical tuition, and indeed a lift from the basement so that no one has to carry the timpanies up the stairs. This is down in the Latro Valley, isn't no, it? No, 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 this is Knox Grammar. This is out in Knox City. It's an extraordinary place. All right. Oh, don't worry, I've worked there. I know what goes on. It's just <laughs> vaguely obscene. Yeah, no, no, that's $47 million. Now, that's capital expenditure at Knox Grammar in a year. Let's go back to Elizabeth Street. Do you know what the capital expenditure... Now, this, this is a serious question. Now, this is a school that's doing well. Funds have in the past been allocated to improve the facilities. Do you know what the capital expenditure total... Now, this includes the Australian government's... the federal government's capital expenditure, 
the state and territory government's capital expenditure, new school loans that the school has taken on, and income allocated from broader capital projects, both federal and state, and also and all other funds. Have a guess how much capital expenditure has been expended upon Elizabeth Street total? Zero dollars. Absolutely nothing. They have recurrent expenses only. That actually tells you, Robert, what our governments think of these children in comparison to the ones at Knox Grammar. It's very revealing. Very, very revealing. Yep. Oh, and accumulated, that is over the last 15 years, Mm -hmm. accumulated over the last 15 years, capital expenditure, federal and state, about $86,000. So I'm going to leave that there. That's a sad note, but I tell you what, oh, those kids are, those kids have lucked in. If you're in that school, good on you. You're in a great state school. And the teachers are doing a terrific job. You've been listening to The Dogs Program on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. If you're interested in what we're talking about, you can get hold of us on our website at www.adogs.info. Or indeed, um, if you've got a great state school you'd like to talk about, give us a call, 94198377. Drop us the name. I'll do the research. I'll speak to you next week.